Our conversation series is supported by AT&T, PepsiCo, Walmart, and Southwest Airlines, the official airline of Texas Tribune events. Media support is provided by the Nagadoches Daily Sentinel. Foundation support is provided by the Hatton W. Sumner's Foundation. Public dialogue and civic engagement play an important role in improving the health and well-being of Texans across our great state. That's why Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas is a proud supporter of free Texas Tribune events like the conversation you're about to see. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our guests. Last time we were here four years ago, we had the same two. We're so pleased to be back again uh, with them. On my left is Representative Travis Clardy, Republican of Nacogdoches, serving in his third term representing District 11 in the Texas House. In the 85th legislature, Representative Clardy is the vice chair of the Local and Consent Calendars Committee, and he serves on the Energy Resources and Higher Ed Committees. He is raised in Lubbock. He's a graduate of Abilene Christian University and the Pepperdine University School of Law. I should mention that he is on the ballot for re-election this fall. Uh, he defeated a Republican opponent in the primary and has a Democrat he'll face uh, in November. On his left, uh, also on the ballot this fall, no opponent in the primary but a Democrat he'll face this November is Senator Robert Nichols, Republican of Jacksonville, who first won his Senate District 3 seat in 2006. In the 85th session, he once again chairs the Senate Transportation Committee and sits on the Administration, Finance, and Business and Commerce Committees. He previously served as the Texas Transportation Commissioner and as the mayor of his hometown of Jacksonville. He has an undergraduate degree from Lamar University. Please give these gentlemen a big hand. Representative Travis Clardy, Senator Robert Nichols. I, I thought, uh, uh, Representative Clardy, since we're on the campus of a higher ed institution and you are on the higher ed committee and we both, all of us, know that education continues to be the thing that we spend the most on of anything in the state of tech. We might talk about higher ed uh, first. We'll come to public ed in a second. Uh, there is a sense that the state is not as committed in some quarters, that the state is not as committed to funding higher education as it might be, as it maybe was once upon a time, and given the growth of the population, and the importance of higher ed in providing the state's workforce going forward, maybe as uh, much as it ought to be funding higher ed. Uh, these days, uh, higher ed represents a much smaller percentage of the budget than it used to, and the state is paying for higher ed at a much less of a percent, much less of a percentage than it used to. And invariably, the cost of higher ed are passed on to parents and, and students. Do you have any concern as a member of the higher ed committee that the state is not doing enough on higher ed, or are you satisfied with what the state is doing? No, I do have that concern. You know, we were at a, uh, a seminar not too long ago. We talked about this. When yes. I was in high school, low many years ago, uh, there was an uproar when they said, we're going to raise the tuition rates from $4 a tuition hour to $12 a tuition hour. And you right. thought the sky was falling. Right. Compare that to where we are today. Uh, and that's in large part because the state, for a variety of reasons, has uh, really de-emphasized uh, higher education, and I would say public education as well, as the priority, which I believe it should be. Right. Uh, with higher education, uh, you know, I'm very pleased and honored to be on the campus of Stephen F. Austin State University once again. Uh, I see my friends across the way from the Texas Association of Community Colleges. We've made a commitment uh, for the 60 by 30 program uh, through the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board where 60% of Texas by year 2030 have a certificate, a diploma, a degree, an associate's, a master's, a uh, doctorate, et cetera, which I think is imperative for the economic future of the state of Texas. Right. Uh, how do we get there? It takes money to solve these problems. And the reality is, Representative, you're only at about 41, 42% right. right now toward that goal of 60%. 
And the fact is, 2030 is just around a corner. That's right. Well, in fact, I, I, I cast it the other day this way. The, the students will be in kindergarten this fall. Yeah. Will be uh, going into college in 2030. We have, we're talking about real lives and being that we're dealing with. Right. What do we do to reverse this trend? Uh, and again, I think it's a commitment of money. But sometimes uh, uh, folks in the state government look at everything that we spend money on as an expense. And to me, when you talk about education, again, whether it be public or higher education, right. it's an investment in the future. There's no, not a more important resource the state of Texas has than the young people of Texas. Yeah. Uh, and to give them that opportunity, we all know, all statistics bear out that uh, your level of educational attainment is a direct correlation, not with each and every case. It's right. not that subjective, but objectively, uh, statistically, uh, the higher you go in education, the more education you attain, the better you will do financially. And it's not always about money, I think, but it also allows right. people to develop their, 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 who they are as a person, their ability to make stronger families. It's, it's a win-win deal. And so I really think we should invest uh, more money in higher education. Chairman Nichols, I like what Representative Clardy has done. He set this up as an expense versus an investment. Maybe we need to stop thinking about higher ed as an expense and start thinking about it as an investment. This was a conversation we had a couple sessions ago when the state made the decision to put more money into transportation. Don't just start thinking about road, or don't think about roads rather as, as an expense. Think about them as an investment. As the population grows, we've got to get people from point to point. What is higher ed but getting people from point to point, right? Uh, higher ed uh, builds the economy. Uh, we've got uh, jobs will follow and industries will invest where there is an educated workforce. Right. If we as a state do not put uh, investment into our higher ed as well as our public ed, right. uh, they will go up other places. And so the state actually, I believe, has done a pretty good job of uh, investing and is, will continue to invest in our higher ed as well as our you're, public You're satisfied ed. with the level of investment in higher ed now? It's, it's, we're, we have trade-offs. As you get into the budget cycle, there's only so much money. Right. And uh, uh, we take each university and each line item and study it individually. I'm on finance. Right. Have been you know the budget? Yeah. And so uh, there are certain items in the budget that are driving everything else out, like Medicaid. Uh, the numbers are percentages of federal uh, decisions that uh, push money out. Yep. But we still believe that the investment in higher ed, and we continue to expand. Yep. Uh, the state is making a $46 million investment in Stephen F. Uh, as we speak uh, right. with the new science uh, STEM building. But you, but you know, Chairman, that it, you know, a generation ago, the state might have been responsible for 25% of the, of the higher ed, the cost of higher ed. Now it's down maybe half that. You know, the, 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 the precipitous decline in the degree to which the state is funding higher ed has pushed those costs off onto families and onto students who believe that higher ed is ever more uh, unaffordable for them. What do we do about that? The, uh, I'm very concerned about the size of the debts some of these students get themselves in. Right, uh, and that that's part a, of the 60 by 30 plan as well, right, is to try to reduce debt. That is a terrible downward spiral. Right. Uh, some of these loans are too easily available and they spiral out of control. And I know that I worked, when I went to school, worked and helped pay my own tuition and stuff like that. Uh, didn't push it off of my parents and didn't borrow. Right. Uh, we did it, and, and those, that's still available today. But I think I would, I would come back and say the state is investing in higher ed, maybe not to the same percentage it was, but uh, when you look at the overall numbers, those numbers have grown. Yeah. They have grown. Right, well, as the population of the state has grown, mm -hmm. right? And, and you know, in the same way, Representative Clardy, on the public education side, you hear a similar complaint that the state is 
largely gotten out of the business of funding public ed to the degree that it used to. We're adding 82,000 kids to the public education system a year, um, and yet the cost of, of, uh, of funding public education is increasingly being passed off to local taxpayers in lieu of the state contributing the percentage that it used to as well. This, this seems like a pattern here of the state getting out of the business of funding education and passing it down to the, to the local user. Well, I do think in state government, there's a broad support across the aisles in both chambers for education conceptually. Right. The problem is, as the senator points out, that you have the, the Medicaid dollars and the squeeze from these. Uh, there's, I think, we're at 80 percent of the budget. He's already spoken before before we show. You do up. a single thing, right? and there's 20 percent that we have some discretion over and how to spend that, and that number is being shrink. Uh, shrunk uh, with each uh, passing session, but uh, I, I do think we, you know, if, if there's one thing I hope that we can uh, attack this next session, I think we should have done it uh, last session. Uh, rather than uh, approach the, the tax issue, you know, I think we've had the tax tail wagging the, the budget dog, wag, <laughs> wagging the public education dog. We really do need to focus on fixing our public school finance uh, portion that, that really that's where the money is. So yeah. People complain about the property taxes. Over half of that comes from your local uh, public. So if you fix district. public education finance, then you're going to be able yeah. to fix property. I, I think it, it, it goes hand in glove, but you need to pick the problem up at the right place. Well, you said that you wish that you had done it last session. Why didn't you? You know, it's a good, good question. And uh, of course, a lowly representative from Macedonia only has so much influence on how decisions are made. But uh, and I do, but I do think uh, among the members there was a really uh, strong desire. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court had ruled that it was uh, um, what's the expression? Lawful, lawful, lawful but awful. lawful but awful. It right. was unfair but not unconstitutional. Uh, it was a strong signal that we should do the job we were literally hired to do, which is go down and fix a problem that has been identified. Uh, by all concerned, and including the, the Texas Supreme Court. And I don't think we, we addressed like we should have. There seemed to be more of a fascination with bathrooms than there was with classrooms. I would like to see us actually go and deal with public education on the merits and how do we deal with funding. Yeah. Because there is, you know, I, Evan, I tell people, I, I view myself very much as a constitutional conservative. And in the Texas Constitution, Article 7, Section 1, it says we shall provide a fair, free, and equitable public education for all Texans. You know, if it was good enough for Sam Houston and Steve F. Austin and Mirabeau Lamar and Thomas Jefferson, so you, Rogers, you good think enough the, for me. the conservative position then is fund public education to a greater degree than than you're funding I, I, I think so. I mean, right. statistically, you go back a decade, we've gone from over 50 percent to where right. we're well under 40 percent. I think you go back 20 years, and it's closer to over 60 than under 40. Uh, Mr. Clardy, a lot of your fellow House members blame the Senate for not uh, getting school finance through. Do you want to look at uh, Chairman Nichols and, and tell me whether you agree with that? I can look with great adoration and respect at <laughs> right. Senator Nichols is and, tell you, and tell you this is one of the heroes in the Texas Senate when it comes to public education. Right. Now, there, there are issues, I, I can't think of one that we don't stand shoulder to shoulder on, and on public education, nobody fought harder in the Senate for public education than Robert Nichols. Uh, and there are a number of senators that feel that way. But uh, you know, I don't want to make this a House versus Senate deal. Oh, I do. Since he's this close. <laughs> but, uh, Come on, man. But, uh, I drove all this way. That's right. Uh, you're working on a few hours sleep. So yeah, we'll, right. we'll, we'll do something. But all no, right. I, I think it's going to be a, uh, yes, there was a difference of philosophy going into last session. Again, I think we got sidetracked on some miscellaneous issues that weren't really critical or important to the future state of Texas. Yeah. Let's go back with a dedication across chambers, uh, coming from the governor's mansion to fix the problems that matter. Well, why didn't you get it done, Senator, all of you guys in the, in the legislature? Because the members have different opinions. That's a simple way to put it. Happens. The, uh, uh, and, and that you have a different perspective depending on where your district is. Right. I have a rural district, 19 counties. 
I have 101 school districts, almost 10% of all the school districts in Texas right. are in Senate District 3. Every two-year cycle, before we go into session, I will spend several weeks, usually it takes about six weeks, to go to every county and visit and sit down with every superintendent and anybody he or she wants to bring to go over the issues. Right. And uh, the issue of whether or not they're funded properly or unfunded properly is a matter of zip code, depending on where you are. So you hear different things from different Oh, it's absolutely yeah. not fair. Right. To say it's fair funded system is not correct. It yeah. is not equitable and it is not fair. Uh, I had 64 of my 101 who have been literally punished fiscally since 1970s because they refused to consolidate. Yep. Uh, formula was put in in the 1970s that said we need to consolidate these small schools and therefore you will get X percent less money till you consolidate. Several hundred schools did consolidate, but every, every two-year cycle for the last decade, my superintendents bring this up. And I was very pleased to announce that in this special session, we ended that. So 64 of my school districts are now going to get more money. Right. Still not totally fair, uh, but it, it, when you've got an asset base that has a lot of national forests and ag land and stuff like that, you can raise a penny, two cents, five cents, ten cents, and it's not going to move the needle very much. Right. If you go out to where we have the nuclear power plant out in Comanche, uh, Glen Rose, uh, they raise it one penny, it brings in a ton of money. Yeah, and, and that really proves, uh, Chairman, that you know you, you can't have a one-size-fits-all school finance plan because you've got, as you say, 1,200 and some right. odd school districts, 8,600 and some odd schools in the state, and every one of those districts and every one of those schools is different, yeah. right? Ten, 10 12, 12 years ago, 2006 was the last time that the legislature actually tried to address public education funding. Yeah. And it was because of the Supreme Court, Texas Supreme Court. Right. And I was not a voting member, but I had already won my election. And so I went to every committee meeting, yeah. was on the floor, actually participated in the caucuses when they broke out. And it was a very interesting caucus. It was not Republican versus Democrat caucuses, and it wasn't urban versus rural caucuses. Yeah. It was winners versus losers. Yeah. And you have a bell-shaped curve. Half the schools in the state get more than the middle. And the other half get less than the middle. Yeah. And so when I talk to my county, and that's not by party, right? There are winners that are yeah, in blue parts like of the I state, said, red parts of the state, and losers in blue parts of the state, red Correct. parts. Correct. There's losers in the urban areas as well. Yeah. And uh, you know, as I talk to some of my counterpart, let's say in Harris County, and I say, well, how many school districts do you have? Let's say two. Yeah. And his whole, his or her whole idea right. of what's right or wrong about public education is what's going on with those two school districts. Whereas I've got a whole- 101. Yeah. yeah, Representative Claudia, are we, are we not in definition of insanity territory here? Are, are we, are we going to go into the next session thinking we want to fix school finance but basically make the mistake of putting in the same set of conditions and expecting a different outcome? Or do you have any hope that you all can, can tackle this next session? 
Well, uh, hope springs eternal, and, and folks that know me, I'm a glass full and overflowing guy. So I believe there is a solution there to be made. There's a lot of bright people that know the statistics and yeah. the numbers. But can we keep doing the same thing the same way, expecting different results? No, we cannot. Uh, I think we have to shift the paradigm. We need to break the model yeah. and start all over. I mean, we have run out of duct tape and bait and wire and band-aids to hold this thing together. And it is unrecognizable from where it started 12 years ago, the last time they yeah. were arrested. So, right. so let's, let's don't keep trying to do the same thing. Right. We talked about uh, property taxes. You're, you mentioned that you thought that there, these things were joined at the hip as issues, public school uh, finance and, and, and property taxes. Um, there was a big fight over property tax reform or relief in the last session as well. And just like school finance, there was a lot of um, interest in getting around this issue, getting to a solution on it. But by the end of the session, nothing actually happened. House and the Senate could not agree uh, on a, a rollback number or a percentage rather that should, where it should trigger voter, voter involvement in the, the desire of local officials to, to raise a, a property taxes. Um, what do we need, Representative Clardy, in the form of property tax reform, and what do you think is possible given the inability of the legislature to get on uh, the same page on this issue last time? Well, let's talk a little bit about what the, the proposals were in the last session right. uh, and about the, putting a cap on property taxes. And, and the focus became on really on the state and uh, or city and county government. Yep. And again, that is a minority percentage of the total tax bill that any uh, citizen of Texas receives when they own property. The majority is on the school side. Right. But we focused on the, the county and the city municipal side. Uh, Why did you, but you focused on the municipal side because municipal officials across parties around the state were generally opposed to what you were trying to do and they made those voices heard. Well, and that's right. You know, my, my old uh, high school basketball coach used to say, you know, that we line us up to the right and say, the fat dog doesn't catch a rabbit. And in this part of the world, we have uh, representatives, we have council members, uh, commissioners that we represent jointly. Uh, they throw nickels around like they're manhole covers. These people are very austere and tight with their budgets. We don't have a problem with runaway taxes in our part of the state. Maybe right. that happens somewhere else, but not here. And so this notion that we do need to impose a cap on the same, the people that are elected by the same people that elected us doesn't make sense. We have an elected form of government. I believe he who stands closest to the fire fights it best. I trust my county judges and commissioners and city councilmen and mayors to make good solid decisions. They live in these communities. They're elected by the same people and they do a fantastic so you're, job. So you're, so you're not looking for a solution that imposes a cap on local officials if they include your local officials? We have, we have, uh, uh, we have uh, measures in place to control local officials who are, are, who go lose their mind and start taxing spending, and, they and that's an election. An election. Called elections. Right. You're a former. Years. You're a former mayor, Mr. Chairman. What do you? Uh, how, how do you see this through the lens of a local official's perspective? Uh, if, if you're doing a reasonable job at the local level, there's a reasonable chance you will get reelected to your job. Where the problem came is uh, the real problem. I get more calls. Probably the number one complaint, 10, 12 years. Yeah. Is my property taxes are too high. Right. Okay. We said it earlier, the bigger share of the tax comes from public education, schools, property yeah, tax. Right. It needs to be fixed. It does need to be addressed. And there are things that we can do on that. The other part, city, county, and mud districts and things like that, you have a cap of 8% right now. And then if you they exceed that, then you have the petition for rollback and so on. But it has not always been 8%. It used to be 5%. If you go back to the Jimmy Carter days, where we had hyperinflation, 18% interest rates, uh, city county governments could not operate. And 
with the dollars of the day. So they raised the row back from five to eight, and the original bill that came across out of the Senate was to put it back at five. I actually took all 19 counties, I went back five uh, years, what was the tax base, what was the tax rate, ran it out for every county and then every city. And I kept ignoring what the different associations were showing me and what the bill author was showing me. We created our own database. And what I saw in our rural counties, uh, the county commissioners and, and mayors and city councils in 18 of my 19 counties, I thought did an excellent job. Typically one and a half percent. Okay, so which was the, which, who was the bad actor? Tell the bad us. actor was Montgomery County on the south end. They right. were increasing people's property rates, homeowners, 10% per year, every year. Right. Every year. Right. And these people were getting pushed out of their homes. They would have to leave and go. To but isn't Representative Clarty right, Mr. Chairman, that all the residents of Montgomery County had to do to fix that problem was vote the bastards out? Didn't yeah, they? You know, but it doesn't, it it's, yeah, it's, but, what happens is when you get into educating the public on whose fault is it, uh, uh, it gets a lot trickier. Uh, uh, and these people did an excellent job of covering that up and blaming somebody else, like the legislature. Well, if I could, yeah. if I could, and there, there, there's an important issue on this that doesn't really get addressed, and, and it's it's really pernicious. And it's about the increase of property values. So if you live in Montgomery or Travis or areas where the property values are increasing dramatically. Uh, that your tax bill will go up significantly because of that increase in property value. But what really drives that a lot of times and drives it in, in uh, rural areas is that the state comes in and performs an audit of the property tax base, which is done county by county by county. We don't have a statewide property tax because of constitutional limitations. So it's done in 254 counties. The state will come in and audit because under the, the it comes back to school financing. For you to get the money fully back from the state, you have to prove that you uh, uh, had maximum uh, local value that you've done a necessary local right. exercise to, to recover those taxes regardless of whether you pay it back to the state or Robin Hood or keep it all local. You still have to show that you fit those local values. So the state will come in spot audit uh, and regularly, frequently. Yeah. And so uh, it's really not driven by, I think, by the commissioners of let's just use Montgomery County who are not, should not be described in the way that you said, uh, but uh, I don't represent them, but I imagine they're pretty good people. I, I do represent them. And, <laughs> and what they did for five years in a row, property values in a high growth area right. shot through the roof. They left the property tax rate the same. And the only reason that people's property taxes did not increase more than 10% per year on their own was because of statutes that were built in. Right. You cannot go higher than that. And, and finally, the locals figured it out. And on the fifth year, they lowered the tax rate and passed a resolution asking the legislature to cap it at five. But, but Chairman Nichols, when you all uh, monkey with property taxes at the state level, and Representative Clardy is correct, there's not a state property tax. But you have ways that you can jimmy with it. Do people actually feel any property tax relief? I mean, I'm going back to 2006 when you all did that big swap out uh, with the business. I mean, pe people didn't even realize that they had had a, a cut in their property taxes. Nobody got a check. Nobody felt like there was much relief. I, I just wonder the degree to which you all believe the public is so exercised about this, but the public doesn't even feel the benefits of the work that you do. And that's why I say uh, the largest complaint I get in Senate District 3 over the past 10, 12 years is right. property taxes. Yeah. People do not understand it. All they see is they see their bill. Right. What happened was we literally cut the property tax for schools from roughly a buck and a half down to a dollar. Yeah. And you would think that would show up 50 cents savings. 
It really did not because we had so many school superintendents who went out with their board members and their public and said, hey, we can build these new campuses, we can build a new stadium, right. and your property tax won't go up. In other words, they absorbed that rate increase with bond issues and stuff. Right. Um, you mentioned as the member of the Finance Committee, Chairman Nichols, that you understand the state budget, that there's a finite amount of money that we could spend every two years. I think the last state budget was about $216 billion, mm -hmm. something over two years. Maybe I have that a little bit off, but it's in that vicinity. And, you know, we'll have a little bit more money next time, but we'll have big challenges in the next budget because of Harvey and because of right. things that you all kicked down the road from the last session. So anybody who goes into this next budget cycle thinking there's going to be a lot of money to spend on new programs is going to be disappointed. So you're going to have to think about adding by subtracting. Where can you cut? If I ask Republicans and Democrats about uh, consistently, both parties, where do you think there's an opportunity potentially to cut to save some money that you could put then into things like public education? What I hear very often is border security. That you all have spent $800 million on border security each of the last two sessions. You now have a Republican administration that wants to be tough on the border. This is primarily a federal responsibility. That's what we heard when Obama was in the White House. Do you think this is finally a session where you all can dial back the amount of spending on border security? I do not think the federal government is there yet. I think they're headed that direction, and as soon as they get there, then I think we could start tapering off as they reach up. But I haven't had very many people in the district say, move our troops, our DPS away from the You think it's too soon? Oh yeah, I, I, I still see reports. I get them uh, several times a month of how much Drugs that they have picked up, drug cartel people. Yep. Uh, they're picking up people not from Central America, but from Morocco, from India, from Sri Lanka, uh, all over the world are coming in our southern border across the Rio Grande. Had they not been there, they wouldn't have called. So you them. think the problem is still uh, enough of a problem that the state's going to have to spend something similar to what it spent last yes, year? Yes, but I think the federal government, the president, has said he wants to increase border uh, protection, and I think they will. Uh, as early on in his administration, as he moves that stuff up, yeah. I'm in hopes that we can pull our resources back and we'll even be willing to sell him some of that equipment. We're not communists. We'll be happy to sell it to <laughs> Be him. capitalist about it, right. <laughs> uh, Representative Clardy, are you satisfied that the amount we're spending on border security is, is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, well, I will say the first two sessions, I guess it's the 83rd and 84th, I fully support it and stand by the decision we made to put nearly a billion dollars a year, I think it's around mm -hmm. $100 million a year right. on the border because the, the, our federal uh, uh, friends of the federal government were not doing the job. And I think it's fundamental to our Constitution. That's one of the, the essential jobs of the federal government is to defend the borders, defend the shores. That wasn't being done. We stepped in. Texans take care of our own business, and we took care of our own border, and it was successful. Right. Uh, I will tell you, I think the federal government has learned a lot from the lessons that Colonel McCraw and the others leading the Texas defense of the border uh, have pushed. Instead of having inland ports or uh, uh, checkpoints, we defended the river. We That's where the, the line is drawn, on the maps and in reality. Uh, but there are things we can do to, to lean that operation up. There's technologies that have been developed. I think that by virtue of having been down there with that intense study, we can do a better job with Well, there are a lot of one-time expenditures, right, in, those, one -time in, expenditures. Those, in those two tranches sure, of money, sure. were there not? So there was. There was. And so I'm hoping we can scale that back. But let's, just hypothetically, let's say we can drop that down to $300 million, that we can save half a billion dollars in that. Well, you pointed out, I mean, it's a $216 billion by budget. 
half a billion dollars is a, is a lot of money, uh, but is that really going to solve the problems we have in other places? And I would say no. So can you get there, you know, subtract? Oh, but I, bet, I, I guarantee you there are a bunch of advocates on issues, public ed and others, that would, would love, love to have, have that half a billion, billion dollars. dollars back. Well, there's right? always people looking for money in Austin. That's one thing I've realized. Well, I'm talking about people not in Austin. I'm talking about people <laughs> out here in your part of the... Right. Uh, and, and, you know, that actually gets me, Representative Clary, to ask about East Texas and about rural Texas particularly because... I was saying to the president, I don't think that East Texas is in the conversation enough. You know, we, we in Austin have a very Austin-centric view of the world. That includes business around the capital. The fact is it's a big state, and there are parts of the state like East Texas that probably ought to be more present in these conversations. And while the population changes in the state have made us more of an urban state and less of a rural state in terms of population, there's still an awful lot of Texas and an awful lot of Texans who are rural, right? So let me ask you about that. You represent communities where the population has been declining, not likely to come back. You represent districts where the education challenges, the health care challenges, the workforce challenges are all significant. What do you do about that? How do you advocate in this legislature, given the direction that the state is headed, where population trends are headed, what do you do to ensure that rural Texas is not forgotten and that these issues are taken care of? Let me ask Chairman Nichols first. And then Hi, the, uh, I would disagree with you a little bit on your, your when you're talking about the population decreasing the population is not growing as fast as urban areas so maybe as a percentage of the overall state maybe that's the case. yes right that, well, that would be, but we are growing east texas is growing people are finding out what we have and they like it and they, they come here so we have a plus population uh, every 10 year cycle west texas is negative uh, for a whole different you don't worry mr chairman you don't worry the kids in all the rural parts of the state, I mean, I'm talking about take it as a, as a unit, that in rural parts of the state are growing up, going to school here, going off to college, and then not returning. That's a, that definitely is happening and in, it's a lot because, of, in a lot of parts. And it's because of the job opportunities. Right. If we can create the job opportunities in rural East Texas, uh, they will stay. Uh, more of them will stay. What's it going to take? And so it's going to take economic development, and we've got economic development forces here. We have a, a regional economic development organization. Um, and um, we look for opportunities all the time. Yeah. I know as a legislature, I'm called at different cities to help on different recruitments for businesses. Yeah. We'll pick some up. Is there more the state should be doing to help you with that? I don't think so. I think we need to keep the state out of economic development business uh, uh, and let the free market system work. Yeah. I really do. I think they can help. Right. A, they can coordinate, they can do this and they can do that. But you don't want to try to distort the free market system by state interfering too much. In Representative Plotty, what Chairman Nichols is describing is a contemporary view of economic development and the role of the state, but it actually is different from 10 years ago. When Rick Perry was governor, what did Rick Perry do but travel around the country pickpocketing businesses from other states? And he often did it using economic development dollars available to the governor through the state budget for the purpose of attracting business here. Now, I understand that there are, there's a, a view of those efforts, they view that as corporate welfare. Why are we spending money on corporations to, to move here? The, the benefit to us is not great enough to justify that. Do you share Chairman well, Nichols' view? Uh, I, I do to, to a point, uh, but I, I don't agree that now Secretary Perry was going around pickpocketing other, other <laughs> states. I think, uh, I believe this absolutely, that inside every American there's a Texan trying to get out. And there are people that are moving here yep. that want to be in Texas because they see the things that are happening here. In our part of the state, uh, the, the, the senator's correct. I think if you not to get into redistricting, unless you want to later, 
but the, 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 the population is, is here, is basically maintained with the state. So we'll be at about 30 million with the next census, is by all projections. And I expect when you look at House District 11, we'll be right you'll around 200,000. We'll be right there. When I talk so, about pickpocketing, though, Representative, what I was saying was governor would go around and say low taxes, predictable regulation, tort sure. reform. He would sell the blessings of Texas. Right. And in that respect, he would attract he, business. He, 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 but economic development dollars were a part of it. That's right. He was out preaching the gospel of Texas, as right. we all should do. And But uh, the, the, where, should that be done at a state level? I, I don't think so. I'm not a fan of centralized authority. I think the more that we can let uh, local decisions be made locally, the better off we will be. Uh, in our area, we have strong economic development corporations in our counties and in the region that know what's important here. But for too long, the, the thing that we, we, I do think we are on an unsustainable trajectory in Texas in that we can keep concentrating our populations in the cities. In East Texas, we are blessed to have the vast majority of the water. Because of that, we also have a place where we generate a vast majority of the electrical production. Right. We also have great public schools and teachers who produce fine students who then move to the city. So we, we make all the electricity, we send it to the city. We have all the water, it goes to the city. We raise the kids, they go to the city. Well, it's time for, instead of us sitting in the mountain of Muhammad, it's time for Muhammad to come to the mountain. And it's time for people to return to the roots because you touched on something a moment ago, Evan, that uh, rural kids are losing their base and they're moving away. And we're losing our contact with the earth, with the soil. Uh, 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 you know, the book was written, uh, uh, God Save Texas, uh, uh, Lawrence, I'm Lawrence Wright. Lawrence Wright, yeah. I was looking at that uh, uh, last night. Uh, but I, I fear that we are losing our Texanity. We're losing who we are as a people, those of us that are from Texas, that are lifelong Texans, that are multi-generation Texans. Uh, it's important, our heritage is very important. So what do we do when we move farther and farther away from the soil when the kids think that the lettuce right. is growing in the back of, a, of the HEB store? Uh, we're forgetting who we are as people. So I think that's one of the missions we need to look at because again, these concentrated populations in the cities is not good. We focus in the, the, on transportation issues. This is the guru of Texas. But what inevitably happens, we get the pressure from the, the urban areas. We have too much congestion to spend the money on congestion. So developers buy more land, they put them on a farm market road, they get congested, we need money to build us a superhighway, and we just repeat that over and over and over. Yeah. Rather than uh, saying, you know, we've got water, people, resources in East Texas. It's a beautiful place to live. There are a lot of folks watching this that do not want to live in the concrete jungle. They would love to be in a place right. that's as beautiful as Nacogdoches or Jacksonville and in a place where they can raise a family and they can hunt and fish in 15 minutes instead of two hours. So. Your question really started out, how do we in the rural area make sure that we're not missing out or overlooked and stuff? And right. We kind of went in this other path. But if you come back to that, it's important for each of us, like in East Texas, there's really two state senators from the Red River all the way down to the Gulf. I happen to be fortunate enough to represent the Southern half. So we. And then we have work with our state reps. So all of us work very closely together. It's important yeah. that we work harder and closer together than other areas of the state. In those urban areas, they kind of argue some amongst themselves. But we work collectively together. We work with the rural people of West Texas. Right. And, and that network uh, uh, allows us to have a very loud voice. And so things that you would normally think about, like in transportation, uh, yes, urban areas where the congestion is, yes, that's where 90% of the people go, and yes, they're gonna get a lot of the transportation dollars. But what most people in the rural areas don't realize is the urban areas are paying 87% of all the highway taxes yep. 
fuel taxes and stuff. And they, in effect, are subsidizing the rural areas, us. And so on these new transportation constitutional amendments and our fundings and stuff, one of the things that we make sure occurs is that rural gets its fair share. How do we do that? We don't have the congestion they do, but we want to make sure our roads are maintained, taken right. care of, and that 60% of all the people dying out there are not where those population areas are, but they're dying in rural Texas, two-lane rural roads. Right. That's East Texas. And so a certain percentage of the dollars goes into safety. It's analyzed by Texas A&M, Texas Transportation Institute, and those dollars, you are all seeing them all over East Texas. It can be putting a shoulder on, it can be putting a turning lane in, uh, road improvements, things like that, that keep people from dying right. on the road. And that's a small way, but it's a pretty big deal. I mean, one way to ensure that rural Texas gets uh, uh, taken care of when these fights are happening is to ensure that the leadership of the legislature has a rural aspect to it. Representative Clardy, there are a lot of people who think that you may be a candidate for speaker in this next, uh, in this next round. Um, you want to make any news today as far as that goes? We're all assuming that you're going to announce yeah, at some point. Hell, you may as well just announce right now. Well, I appreciate the invitation, Evan, yeah. I really do. But uh, I think any of those decisions would be premature at this juncture. Uh, one thing I know is we will have a strong leader in the Texas House right. in the 86th legislature. When does your decision to get in or not get in this race not become premature? You've got to get yeah. in at some point if you're going to run. You know, it, it's, it, it will not be premature when the time is right. Is the time so? It, with, with the time, that—that's just a truism. I mean, I don't think they no I great insight was, there. I, I thought mean, that was profound. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, is the time going to be right after uh, November, or would someone who is thinking about running for speaker necessarily have to make a decision before the election? Well, you know, the, the thing about the, the speaker's race, and again, there are any number of members that I'm, I'm proud to serve with who could do an exceptional job being the next speaker. Right. I would like to think I might be one of those. Uh, you know, somebody says, are you interested? And I said, yes, and probably it's over 149 other members of the Texas House. Right. But uh, when will the time be right? The, the, the thing about this is, this is, uh, as most people know, uh, the speaker is elected by the 150 members who are sworn in on, in January at the session. Uh, one, we don't know exactly who those people will be. Correct. There could be upwards at least 20, but maybe 30. It depends on what happens in November. Politics are funny things and right. uh, how that could turn out. Uh, but it is such a uh, really intensely personal decision for the members because these are the people that you're going to spend a lot of your uh, waking hours with right. for 140 days. And it's important to have those relationships that are strong and serve with people that you can respect and someone that you can trust that's going to make the kind of decision that protects the body. But also, I would say distinct from what we saw in the 85th, I would like to see uh, our leadership across the state and the Senate and the House uh, and the Governor's Mansion be able to work more closely together, particularly, and I'm going to uh, make an assumption here I believe to be true, uh, that we will all uh, be from the same party. And I think the people who elect us expect us to be able to work well together when we all come from the same political organization. So, you know, I, I got this crazy notion that you ought to be able to have breakfast once a week and actually talk about issues. Well, that would and be an improvement we, over since, the last session. Since we had yeah. these things in common, you yeah. would think that we could identify those areas of common commonality and right. common good that we can focus on. So, uh, you know, that's what I hope we, we're going to look forward you'll, to. You'll decide in time, but what, yeah, I'm, but, what but, I'm not but, hearing is right. that you foreclosed on running. You, you have no, not ruled no, it out. No, no, certainly haven't ruled, ruled it out. Uh, first things first, I do have an election in November we need to take care of. But I think what you'll see is because of the intimate nature of this decision, 
the members will be talking among themselves in groups or ones or twos or threes right. over the next several months. Uh, we'll see what the tea leaves look like after uh, November after 8th, November. after the general election. Uh, our caucus took uh, action in the Republican caucus that you know we would select from within and try to make an attempt to, to identify that person that the caucus would fully support. I think that's really going to be a that was what's going to happen anyway, as I've told everybody, and I supported that move within the caucus. Uh, but I fully expect the next speaker will be a Republican and will be supported by a Republican caucus. But the great thing about the Texas House and about the Texas state government in general is we don't have an aisle to reach across. We are all in and amongst ourselves. And as the senators pointed out, it's rural, it's urban, it's suburban, it's urban. Uh, but the one thing I think we all share yeah. genuinely is a love of Texas and doing the right thing. And so I'm confident we're going to come up with a, a good leadership in the House and a, and a more productive uh, session in the 86. Yeah, Ch Chairman, the, the representative is talking about the November elections that we don't know what's going to happen. No, this is Texas. We, we know what's going to happen in all likelihood. But there is this question of whether the national political environment is going to visit itself upon us. Texas tends to be insulated from a lot of that stuff. Legislature right now is 95-55 Republican to Democrat in the House, 2011 Republican to Democrat in the Senate. Are you expecting very much change? Do you see something? There are some members of your party in the legislature who are, who are putting up a warning flag that some of what we've seen elsewhere could happen. The, uh, I'm not really going to comment on the House side. One of the things I learned in the Senate was that the Senate should stay out of House politics. So Amen. I'm not going to make predictions. Are you the only <laughs> senator who's, who's learned that? Because it seems... There's, a, there's some members that have not learned that yet. Yeah. I will say that. Uh, they can be picking their nose at it. You think the Senate's going to look the same way it does next time the way it did last time? Uh, one of the things that concerns me is not so much the rural area on your Senate members, but in the big urbans, and I'm talking about the... Dallas County, the Fort, you know, Travis, Tarrant County, Harris County, uh, where uh, in the Clinton versus Trump, Clinton did so well. Right. Uh, I've got, th we have three Republican state senators that are up for re-election where in their district that Clinton beat Trump by a handy amount. I'm talking about eight, nine, ten. Well, I, th I think Clinton beat Trump in the Huffines district. Trump won by just a hair in the Burton district, and then I think in uh, uh, Senator Huffman's district it was pretty close as well. So these are these are the three that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, and close. that was before Trump got in. Right. Now they're madder than a hornet's nest, and so they, you know, supposedly you have this blue wave. So you're worried about those three: Huffines, I, Burton, and, and Huffman. Absolutely, I'm concerned about those three. And yeah, I think uh, handily. Whereas those, they either lost or, like you said, it's a hair difference. And that was before what they call the blue wave. Uh, uh, I think the blue wave didn't hit a red wall, but in East Texas. And so the first thing I did is there has not been a Democrat run for Texas Senate in Senate District 3 since the year 2000, 18 years ago. So this is the first time you've got an, a Democratic opponent. I've never run against a Democrat. Yeah. And so first thing I did was check, but we have worked to uh, with some, many of these other counties that yeah. typically were considered uh, yeah. democratic counties and I, we think the party left them but uh, and I checked my Clinton Trump vote and Trump won by 78 percent in this district and he so won by 78 78 percent yeah 22 percent you happy with the president yes as a Republican as a yes. president you're, you're, you're I, I wish he'd put his phone down and quit twittering but yeah, I do like <laughs> Representative Clark, are you happy with the president? I, I am happy with him. And I'll, I'll tell you, the thing I'm most happy with, I, my wife Judy and I were talking when we saw the uh, the news. I mean, 
it was like watching the Berlin Wall fall. Did I ever think that I would see the South Korean president and the North Korean president holding hands and walking across the line of demarcation? Yeah. No, and that was brought about by you credit him. I do. I say it was an insightful uh, foreign policy in a very uh, unorthodox way, which does seem to be his style. Uh, I'm very pleased with the appointment of Neil Gorsuch as the Supreme Court Justice. There are some things, I think you look at the lowest unemployment rate in 18, 20 years, you look at the stock market, there's some very good things going on. That said, the politics of division and polarization are very much at work uh, in our presidential politics, and unfortunately we see that in our state politics too. Uh, and rather than focusing on the things that he's done well and is doing, doing good and giving him some support to do those things, uh, other appointment of uh, federal judges, et cetera. Has uh, he done perfect? No, but I would challenge you to find since George Washington a president that has. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm very encouraged by the direction he's gone, but people don't want to seem to deal in the realm of politics or, or of facts. They want to deal in the area of perception, and there seems to be this deep ingrained animosity and antipathy towards yeah. uh, President Trump, which I think is, is irrational. What's your over-under? Before we go, we're going to go to the audience here in a second. If you have questions, please come up to the microphone. What's your over-under on the number of Democratic House seat pickups? What do you think Over in the fall? Conventional wisdom has been five or six. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to see a blue tidal wave. I do think we're going to see a significant uh, blue storm surge. A couple more Democrats. Uh, I, I, I think we can see somewhere eight to ten. You think that it could be as many as eight to ten? Okay. Audience questions. What, do you, what, do you, uh, what would you like to know from these folks that we've not covered? Please uh, come on up to the microphone. I could just spend the next 10 minutes parading Clardy into telling me whether he's running for speaker. That's what you want. <laughs> please, questions. Questions, but, please. Yeah, please go to the microphone there. We'll be happy to, have to use it. Please. Well, for the purpose of this uh, live stream, we would love it if you would use, your, use the microphone. Yes, sir. Okay, my name is John. I'm 69 years old. I've been involved in politics my life. What I have seen take place in this country, and I was born. It's frightening, especially with the new breed of politicians that we have, and worst of all, the so-called media. And this is for the three of us. Is it possible to reverse what is trending right now in the country towards socialism? Because I was born reading Dr. and the CSL, and even the Texas Tribune, I believe the Constitution. You guys have become clones in this country, to profit and the and the politicians are always self-serving. And can we change this? Well, ordinarily, we're, we're compared to the New York Times. That's bad enough. So the problem. Compared to Pravda, I haven't heard that one before, but um, no, that's okay. Um, uh, I didn't understand. The, the concern yeah. is we, we, this gentleman sees socialism at work in our government and in our media and is concerned that the direction of the country, am I saying this correctly, is, is we're heading in the wrong direction, not the right direction. Chair, well, Chairman, I, what do you I, think about it? I've been very concerned about it as well. I think yeah. you hit the nail on the head. Uh, when in the previous administration, I mean, it was heading as fast as you could towards socialism. Uh, yeah, national. Uh, in medical insurance, in other words, the government taking over the insurance industry, uh, and the you know so many of the other programs I saw, and it, it it was frightening, and it's much more difficult to actually try to get engaged in the process and go through the kind of things that we have to go through to have an opportunity to participate in government in the way we do, uh, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, Ch Chairman, is the, is the problem the, the, the president or the occupant of the office or is the problem the system? 
Here we had an election in 2016 in which we completely overturned a mulch of government, right? We put in somebody who I think up until election day many people thought was not going to win. He comes in saying I'm going to drain the swamp and I'm going to, we're going to totally change the way government is run, but we're seeing deficits actually go up in the same way that many people complain were going up in the last time. I just wonder if maybe the problem is that everybody ends up becoming the thing that they despise when they get into government and the system is the thing that's broken, not the people in the system. The, uh, there's some group that measures countries all around uh, the globe right. as to how liberty, a measurement of liberty, and you would think the United States would be up close to the top five or six or eight, but notch by notch, we actually keep dropping down. And it's because of what he was just talking about. Uh, and it, it, it is scary. But uh, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance and constantly pushing back in a way that is effective. And so that's the kind of things that uh, Travis and I try to do. You know, Representative Florida, the, the discussion in the last session about local control, mm -hmm. you know, everybody talks about wanting to put, you in fact said a version of this yourself, we want to push government down to the lowest level. The best government is the government closest to those being governed. And yet there were instance after instance of the state saying, actually, we don't want local locals to have those decisions at the local level. We want to put them at the state. I, mean, I guess, is there an inconsistency between the two? I don't think, I think Texas has a proud heritage of being focused locally. I think if Sam Houston says something, paraphrasing, uh, you know, government, we should govern wisely and, and make decisions sparingly. Yeah. Uh, we should not inject government into every personal decision or try to. Right. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, uh, but the, the question that John uh, asked, and, and by the way, I do want to come to the defense of Comrade Smith. Uh, but that, uh, Dust be done yet. <laughs> but uh, but, but in, in, in all sincerity, yeah. I think there is a blending in people's minds in perception of what is going on in Washington, D.C. and the swamp and that morass, which is our federal government, and what we do in Austin. And there is a radical difference on how we govern in Texas, and I think we've, we are, have stayed true to those constitutional principles established back in 1836 and 1845, the heritage of this state, uh, and, and are very mindful of that. Very, and which, by the way, is there's a reason that when I took office in 2013, this is because of me, Texas was the 15th largest economy as a standalone country. Not suggesting anything. I'm just saying, if Texas were a standalone country, we were 15th. California was sixth. Right. Last year, we just passed Russia as the tenth largest economy in the world. California has slid to either eighth or ninth. I think it's tenth. Even. Right. And the point of that is, what are we doing different than what California is doing? You know, one of my colleagues says, "Don't California my Texas." We're determined not to do that. Right. So. Your question had to do with local control and True. the state intervening. Yeah, answer right. my question. I'm going to answer, I'm gonna answer <laughs> yeah. this question. I know you have a strong point of view about this. Yes. Uh, and I served for nine years as city councilman and mayor, and I always right. hated it. When the legislature, at the end, a couple months later, I'd get a document that told all the different things I had to do. I called them unfunded mandates, and, and it offended me. Um, but as I look around the state, we see examples where some of these cities actually are interfere with the free market and they violate people's private property rights now at what extent do we leave that alone or do we step in an example would be if you own a tree in your yard is that your tree or somebody else's tree if you don't even live in the city limits and i've dealt with this bill uh, outside of san antonio decided their extraterritorial jurisdiction goes out five miles 
a five-mile-thick donut around the city of San Antonio, and the land geography is larger than Rhode Island. And they passed a city ordinance that says you cannot cut a tree down without a permit from the city. Yet you do not live in the city, and you do not get to vote on your city councilman. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do, you'll be fine. And uh, But your perspective changed, you say, Chairman, when you got to the legislature. In other words, would Mayor Nichols be opposed to the positions articulated across, by Senator Nichols? Because I ran across, I yeah. still believe local patrol is the best patrol, up until the point where you violate people's uh, private property rights, their civil liberties, or interfere in the free market. Uh, for instance, Uber would not be in Nacogdoches today had we not interfered. Uh, the, each city was trying to pass their own ordinances, uh, and you had a couple of large cities that were actually trying to put the squeeze on them, take a percentage of their overall make. And when you get into an urbanized area like a metroplex, where you have 90 cities, and if each one of those cities has a different ordinance, how is somebody, an Uber driver, going to get from point A to point B without violating one of those ordinances? So they were leaving the state. They left Austin. They left San Antonio. They were just fixing to leave Houston. And the state had to intervene and say, yeah. cities, you cannot uh, regulate that particular industry. We have, the, for instance, the city of Austin today is uh, trying to set, well, they've already set uh, minimum wages for construction workers. How can a city do that? Well, that and the city, the, the next battle on the local control front is that the city of Austin just mandated yeah. paid sick leave, not just for yeah. the public uh, sector, but for, for private businesses. How, how can they do that? Yeah. But I, I think the standard we should apply, at least personally, is what I've developed. So I supported the, the, uh, the fracking ban law that we passed, I think that was in the 84th. I uh, supported the, the, the ride share bill, because again, but I think the way we have to look at this, to not trample on individual citizens' rights, nor the local uh, elected officials, uh, who are the representatives of these people, is there, there must be a compelling state interest. It needs to be a higher standard. Than, well, this, is, this might be a little better than what they're doing. I think you need to be able, if you can't clearly express why, uh, the state has compelling interest to step in and the, the fracking ban, the riots are ban. This is why this was a good idea. And again, I think it needs to be held to strict scrutiny. Uh, before we weigh in, as a state government, into these local issues, we should really, really put it up to the light and examine it. Very much so the way we don't like the unfunded mandates coming down from the federal government onto our state operations. But uh, we have an obligation to protect the free market system. We have an obligation to protect private property rights and people's civil liberties. And when anytime a city, a county, or an entity violates any of those things. Then you think the state needs to get there. Then the state has to step Ma'am, we'll take this question before we wrap up. Yes.
So would you would you advocate for ma making certain that anyone who is here without status has no access to the things you just talked about? Yes, I would. Okay. Representative. They don't deserve yeah. it. They're here criminally. They do not deserve to have what we have worked to pay taxes to the land. They right. Of course, Representative Carter, you know many undocumented people in the state of Texas pay taxes. Right. And, and uh, I have the advantage of being able to discuss this with an idol on, on nearly any occasion uh, as one of our my favorite constituents and, and uh, serve on our local hospital district board. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, well, to be very clear, what I said is I think we have the opportunity to scale back our state spending on the border because I expect that to be more than made up for by increased federal spending, which is the authority that should protect the border. That is a federal constitutionally required obligation. Uh, but, you know, as I tell people, we be mindful of this that here's a little geographical oddity, a fact for you. Mexico was our neighbor before the current immigration crisis, and newsflash, Mexico will be our border, our neighbor after the current crisis. It's our single number one largely trading partner that is vital in our Texas economy. We have had a good relationship with the country of Mexico it, sometimes it's been checkered, sometimes it's been difficult, but the fact remains we are going to be Mexico's neighbor no matter what happens. I think we can build a better relationship there. There's things that we can do to improve the economy in Mexico. I think we need to fundamentally change our approach in Mexico and Central and South America on a federal level. Again, that's not my job as a state rep from Nacogdoches. But until then, I fully support us spending what is necessary in conjunction with our federal partners to secure the border. First things first, secure the border, and then we deal with the immigration issues. Then we deal with these other things. But first things, we've got to secure the border. I think we've done that. I think we did the right thing the last two sessions, and I'm confident we'll do the right thing in maybe six. Ch Chairman, the questioner is suggesting we should not allow undocumented persons in the state to have access to health care, public education, welfare, whole, whole, whole host of services. Do you agree with that? Uh, we, we, the state, at one time, some of the schools did try to push not accept those children and, and educate them. And the Supreme Court, the United States, stepped in and said, "They're here. You've got to. You've got to." And so we're operating under a Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, not Texas Supreme Court, mandate on the education thing. The uh, we create a magnet of jobs here that bring them across, and uh, it's hard to get them back out. But uh, even like the DACA program under the previous administration, uh, as soon as they, uh, President Obama said, we're not going to kick you out if you're 17 or under, billboards lit up in South America that said, now is the time to get your kids to the United States. And th that's what happened. So you agree, you agree with the Attorney General who is now sued to end the DACA program? Yes, absolutely. You agree with the Attorney General to end DACA? I've got to be honest with you. I'm not sure why that suit was filed now. I've not read his suit. I, I, I'm familiar with the issue. I noticed on Twitter today, I think Senator Cornyn, who was our former Attorney General, was not really Senator, Senator Cornyn was Senator Cornyn was questioning the rationale right. of the suit on Twitter today. He was. That's right. Yeah. And again, it's a, a, a federal starts on the border. If you don't shut it down at some time, uh, when Reagan was president, 1987, they said, you know, we'll accept everybody here. If you can prove you're here in 1987, and we're going to shut down the border. And we haven't had a president since that has shut down the border. They can shut down the border anytime they get ready, uh, uh, and they have not chosen to do that. So the state of Texas did the best we knew how to do 
put resources down there to try to slow it down. And what we're finding out is, yes, there are people who are trying to come here to get health care, but also to work and get educated, to educate and find a better life for the children. But in that same mix are some really bad people. There's a lot of bad cartel people. There's people from countries all over the world. And they're not coming in here necessarily to get a job. They're coming in here to do bad things to us. Right. How is our time? Are we okay? We, we, we out of time? Okay, I'm very sorry we're out of time. Uh, please give Representative Clardy, Senator Nichols, a big hand. Thank you to Stephen F. Austin for having us. Thank you all for coming. We'll see you again. <laughs>